0: Please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 19. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased now to open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we would Know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Father, may your word before us be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. How many of you all still write personal letters? I mean, really write, either handwrite or word processor right. I think uh, writing letters is a dying art. Well, how about reading personal letters? How many of you all like to read personal letters? Letters probably written a long time ago. Every now and then, um, I'll come across a letter from one of my grandfathers, and he interestingly uh, didn't write things by hand, but in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, uh, typed his letters. It's interesting to, to read them. Um, lately, I've been uh, enjoying um, reading letters of John Newton. Uh, we sang Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, written by John Newton, but he also wrote a lot of letters. Uh, in particular, uh, they say he was a better counselor than a preacher. We know he's a great hymn writer. And I'm beginning to see that his letters are really his strong point, where he takes time to encourage um, young believers, uh, maturing believers, uh, fellow pastors. In particular, I'm working my way through a book called Wise Counsel, John Newton's Letters to John Ryland Jr., a a fellow pastor. And and reading letters, right, it gives an insight as to who the person is and the situation. Um, In particular, Reading somebody's letters um, helps you understand the relationship that the author had with the intended recipient. Now Acts, the book of Acts, provides historical background to the letters, to the epistles that we have in the New Testament. Letters to both churches and individuals. Acts helps provide a context, helping us to understand why a letter was written. Now last week we were traveling on the road with Paul and then we were in Ephesus with Apollos. And, and we saw, if you look back to um, Acts uh, 18, of how Paul's ministry was, uh, was summarized as strengthening all the disciples. And, and Apollos' ministry was summarized as he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Well, for three weeks, we're going to be here in Ephesus. And it's going to help us understand Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians, interestingly, helps us understand what's taking place here in Acts 19. Paul, we believe, wrote the letter to the Ephesians from Rome uh, when he was under two-year house of rest, probably from AD 60 to 62. And if you would join me in turning uh, to his letter to the Ephesians. I want to highlight a few things. Uh, Here's how Paul starts his letter. Remember, he's going to spend almost three years in Ephesus, and later, a number of years later, he writes back to the church, and this is how he begins his letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A pretty typical Greeting of Paul for his letters, and if you uh, read the uh, preparing for worship email, you may have seen that I encouraged you to read Ephesians one three through fourteen because in the original language it was one sentence. I mean, can you imagine Paul's like Greek teacher, like, "Hey man, run-on sentence," okay? But but notice how this sentence ends, and I think this will provide a nice introduction to where we are today. If you look with me at verse 13, Paul writes, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So he has a greeting and then he speaks of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and he climaxes it, he ends it with what you have in him and in the Holy Spirit. Acts 19 is going to help us understand Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus, the people of Ephesus, and why he wrote what he wrote. Now the ministry of the Holy Spirit... um, forgotten in, in reformed circles it's crazy but sometimes the, the you've heard of the frozen chosen the 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 people who who may have right doctrine but they have no life now of course that's a wrong caricature but to to some degree the holy spirit is neglected that's crazy because calvin was known as the the um theologian of the holy spirit and even though the westminster confession of faith doesn't have a chapter of the holy spirit the Holy Spirit is everywhere. And yet, to a degree, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is forgotten. But if it's not forgotten, then it's misunderstood. Think of charismatic and, and Pentecostal flavors of Christianity. It, it's, it's misunderstood, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And it's underappreciated. Some of us participated last, this time last year in What is the Holy Spirit, a Ligonier teaching series where Sinclair Ferguson walked us through this, this ministry, this forgotten ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts chapter 19, I think we will, we will be helped to remember and in particular to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And remember, when we went through the Apostles' Creed, it's a Trinitarian creed, just like the Nicene Creed, because what you have in the Apostles' Creed, which will be our confession of faith, is the creating work of the Father, the rescue work of the Son, and the recreating work of the Holy Spirit. Paul had a long ministry in the city of Ephesus, three years, really, probably two years and three months, but in the, in the Jewish way of reckoning a year, if you got into the year, it counts as a whole year. I kind of like that for pay purposes. You know, work a week and it counts for a year. But three years. And notice, and I'm going to begin reading just the first verse of chapter 19, and it, would, it had happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. He comes back to Ephesus. Remember in chapter 16, the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going to Asia. And then, last chapter, chapter 18, the people, after his ministry in the synagogue, said, Would you stay? And he says, I can't stay, but if the Lord wills, I'll be back. And here he is back to Ephesus. The Lord wills. Paul has trusted in the sovereignty of God. He's flexible, he's confident because he knows God is in charge, and God brings him back to Ephesus, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Founded in, in the 12th century BC, it became a commercial power, but by the time of Paul, it, it had declined, but it was still a major trading city. There's wealth and there's prestige, and as we will see, a religious landscape dominates with the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world um, built in honor of the goddess of fertility. Here in Acts, we're looking back at our history, the early church, and we're moving forward in our mission. Now, many folks, and we ourselves may have said it, we've got to get back to the early church, right? Meaning, we've got to get back to the way things were done in the early church. But, we need to be able to distinguish between, in the early church, the extraordinary and the ordinary. Between what is unique and what is normative between what is no longer to be expected and what is to be expected. And so for the next few minutes, we're gonna take a look back at Paul's ministry in Ephesus in order to look around and look ahead at our ministry here among one another and in our community. In Paul's ministry in Ephesus, we'll see what is extraordinary as well as what is ordinary, what is unique as well as what is common and what is no longer to be expected, and what is to be expected. So first, let's consider the extraordinary, the unique, and the no longer to be expected. So picking up where I left off in verse 1, Paul gets back to Ephesus, and we read, There he found some disciples, and he said to them, This, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Now, I want to start off this section just by making the statement that, that bad doctrine leads to bad practice. Whereas good good doctrine often leads to good practice. True doctrine leads to good things, and false doctrine leads to kind of bad things. And here, this particular passage, this particular section of Paul's encounter with these disciples, uh, our Pentecostal friends, our charismatic friends, look at this incident and say, aha, there's proof there are two stages in Christianity. You know, regular Christians and spirit-filled Christians, right? And we've all known people like that. We ourselves may have, for a time, been involved in something like that, where there's two stages in Christianity and there's two classes of Christianity in Christians. That, we will see, I believe, is, is bad doctrine and it leads to bad practice. And it certainly can never give a Christian really assurance, can it? I mean, it's going to put fuel to a works-based religion, isn't it? Born-again Christian. Is there any other kind of Christian? A spirit-filled Christian. Is there any other kind of Christian? Now, here in this incident is the fourth of four unique incidents, limited to the apostolic age, that is, when the apostles were living, after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost that we read in the early part of chapter 2. Now, this is the fourth of four. What was the first? Well, it's when the Jews in Jerusalem, remember at the end of Peter's sermon, he said, he said, what, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They received his word and were baptized. But later in chapter 8, we see Philip preaching and they're Samaritans. And what happened? What happened? They received the Holy Spirit. Turn with me back to chapter 10. Because what you have there is you have Peter preaching to God-fearing Greeks, to Gentiles in Caesarea. And beginning in chapter 10, verse 44, hear these words. So in Acts 19, Paul is preaching in Ephesus. And here in chapter 10, it's it's Peter preaching in Caesarea. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ then they asked him to remain for some days so there's Jews in Jerusalem there's Samaritans um, uh, with in Philip and there's is there's uh, Gentiles in Caesarea and here in Acts 19 there are Jews But they're dispersed Jews, they're away from Jerusalem, they're away from Palestine, they are there in Ephesus. We heard Paul ask two diagnostic questions. He, He comes, he finds what Luke says are some disciples. Well, what kind of disciples are they? Paul asked a couple of diagnostic questions. The first one is this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed. And they answer right away. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, well, what does that mean? Well, they're Jews. Of course they've heard of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures speak of the Spirit. Think about David in Psalm 51. Don't take your spirit from me. You know the Spirit anointed certain leaders of God's people. Of course, they had heard of the Holy Spirit. If they're disciples of John, if they're understanding what John taught, John himself speaks of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Rather, what it means is that they hadn't even heard of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They haven't heard of Pentecost, which, of course, followed the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus You see, if they were followers of John, which we believe they are, then they would have known the message that John preached, that the Messiah would bring the Spirit. Recall what we heard from our New Testament reading from John 1. What we hear there is also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the ministry of John the Baptist, looking ahead to the ministry of Jesus. And like we said last week with Apollos, he had He had heard, but it wasn't yet complete. It was partial. It hadn't been fulfilled. And that's why we went back to Ezekiel 36, where there's sort of a break between verse 25 and 26 and 27 of promise and fulfillment. Pentecost, as it were, fulfilled what Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 speak about. It's as if... These disciples, these Jews in Ephesus had been in a redemptive historical salvation history time warp. They were still in Acts 1, as it were. Imagine this, children, imagine a merchant in Philadelphia in the year 1774. And he wants to head west, okay? He wants to go west, he's tired of the city life, and he hears rumblings of... Independence and war, but he goes off, hitches a wagon to his horses, and he heads west, and he gets into the mountains, maybe even the Kentucky mountains, maybe, and he establishes his life there. And lo and behold, what, 15 years later, 15 years later, somebody comes to him and says, hey, have you heard what President Washington said? President Washington well, have you heard about uh, the capital of the United States of America? What? You see, history had happened. The, the American Revolution had been fought and won, and the United States was now an independent nation, and, and George Washington was the first president. But this merchant from Philadelphia who went to the mountains of Kentucky hadn't heard. That's similar to what's taking place here. They hadn't heard. They hadn't heard he follows it up with, a, with another question, into then, into what then were you baptized? And they immediately answer, into John's baptism. And John's baptism, as we heard, is a baptism of repentance that was directed toward repentance of sins. And it looked forward to the redeeming work of the Messiah, Jesus. And so Paul asks questions, two diagnostic questions, and he gets answers and then he takes action. And the first action he took is the ministry of the word. Look at verse 4. And Paul said, Paul proclaimed, Paul declared, Paul preached. He preached Christ. Because these disciples are, are living without either the truth or the power of the Christian gospel. They hadn't been instructed about the coming of the spirit. You see, John's ministry and teaching was preparatory. It was partial. It was provisional. It was stressing men's sinfulness. And it thus created a a, a strong sense of a need. For what it was that the Messiah who was to come would provide. Because John's baptism for repentance looked forward to Jesus. Who by his death would make possible the forgiveness of sins. You see... In forgiveness, somebody's got to pay, right? Somebody's got to pay. If, if you are driving your car and you run into somebody else's car, right? Somebody's got to pay for the damage. Either you pay for the damage or the other person pays for the damage. And, and, and John is saying there is coming one who will pay for the damage that your sin caused. He will pay through his perfect, obedient life, through his sacrificial death in your place and on your behalf. John knew who he was. He was someone like all of us are called to be, someone who points to Jesus. We're not the Savior. Our church is not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior through whom and in whom only forgiveness of sins can be found. So what was Paul's response? The ministry of the word. But notice what else he does. It's the ministry of the sacrament. Having learned how Jesus had fulfilled the message of John the Baptist, then these disciples submitted to the baptism in the name of Jesus. Now, don't get concerned here. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, He did. But if you look back to chapter 10, verse 48, it's another baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And that name represents the fullness of the Trinity. They received with their baptism the new covenant fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Something that happened to Jesus' disciples For the first time on the day of Pentecost, remember, they were gathered. And like a rushing wind and like flames of fire, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. And these disciples in Ephesus, these men who were following the teaching of John the Baptist, they were still under the old covenant until the Spirit brought them, as it were, into the new covenant. So, Paul has a ministry of the word and he has a ministry of the sacrament. He speaks and preaches and he baptizes. Isn't that the ministry of the church today? The ministry of the word, the ministry of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's both. It's both. You've got the word spoken and the, and the word, as it were, visible and proclaimed. But what took place? What happened? What we have is an extraordinary occurrence. Look again at verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. It's an extension of the Pentecost experience to yet another group of people. It's number four of four now to dispersed Jews. Because the final act of the saving ministry of Jesus... Before his return in glory is when he pours out the Holy Spirit. When we read of them prophesying, it's, it's, they could be telling the mighty works of God as we see in Acts chapter 2 or as we saw in Acts 10, extolling God. It's an outward demonstration and verification of them receiving the Spirit. Let's stop for a moment and think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons why I believe the Holy Spirit is often forgotten is because the Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself. He rather draws attention to Jesus. His primary ministry, as we read in John 16, 14, is to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit, as we know, declares to us the truth about Christ, The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, comforts us with an assurance of forgiveness, and calls us to live a new life. The Holy Spirit, as it were, works out in the believer what Jesus has won for the believer. Scholars have rightly said that the Holy Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ. It's the agency through which all of the benefits of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection get to us as we believe, as we trust in Jesus. Now, having considered what is extraordinary, unique, and not to be expected, what we will now see is an ordinary ministry, a normative ministry, and a ministry that should be expected. Let's pick up beginning in verse 8. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now let's think about this again. It's an ordinary ministry. It is a normative ministry. It is a ministry that should be expected. What do we see? First of all, we see Paul speaking, proclaiming preaching he's speaking the word boldly now if you were to take a quick study in acts to see what it is that gives the disciples gives the apostles boldness to preach guess what it is it's the holy spirit preaching in the power of the holy spirit because paul is aware of the powerful personal presence of the holy spirit He's not only speaking boldly he's reasoning there's a formal aspect to his proclamation and there's persuading more informal give-and-take dialogue that we've seen elsewhere what Paul is doing here in the synagogue he's marshalling evidence from the Old Testament promises and bringing to them the New Testament eyewitnesses of fulfillment Paul's got no new message And he's got no new method. He continues to preach Jesus from the scriptures. And we read here that Luke says, persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's a pretty rare expression on the lips of Paul, but it's not rare for Luke. If you take a look at Luke's gospel, the kingdom of God appears time and time again. But it's how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the word of the Lord, the kingdom of God, almost um, synonymous um, expressions. And if you think about how the book of Acts ends, we find Paul living there in Rome two years at his own experience, expense and welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see, Paul knows the king, and so he's preaching the kingdom. But secondly, we see Paul moving on to other people in a new place. Why? Well, because he encounters resistance. He encounters people who are stubborn, unbelieving and speaking evil about the way when people hear the gospel one of two things happen their hearts are either softened toward the gospel or their hearts are hardened against the gospel he speaks and he moves on he withdraws is paul a quitter is he scared no, he recognizes that for whatever reason the Holy Spirit is not softening hearts here. He is following Jesus's instructions to his disciples. If you don't get a reception, move on. And then, thirdly, we see Paul continuing. So he leaves the synagogue and he goes to a what we believe is a, a, a teaching arena. A, A lecture hall and Paul spent several hours a day we believe in the the heat of the midday uh, the owner Tyrannus we don't know much about him but it's like he rented out space for Paul and so Paul said hey I don't need a synagogue I'll just teach and preach of Jesus the gospel the kingdom from this lecture hall he continues he withdraws and that leads to further advance he doesn't quit and Remarkable statement. For two years, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. From Ephesus, all of Asia. From Bellevue, all of northern Kentucky. From every church in our area that's faithful to the gospel, the gospel goes out to the surrounding area. Paul speaks. Paul moves on, and Paul continues. It's a good model for us, isn't it? Especially in personal evangelism. Um, You share Christ with somebody, they're not interested. Try again. But then if they continue to resist, move on. Pray. And how many times does the person you've moved on from call you back? Why? Because the Lord is at work. It's a great model for us to speak, to move on, and to continue. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is involved here as well. The ministry of the Holy Spirit through Paul's proclamation of the gospel is pouring out the love of God into the hearts of the people, giving Paul more and more power to proclaim the gospel. And Paul, as he would write the church in Rome, speaks of the Holy Spirit's ministry to pray for believers when they don't know how to pray. What we see happening here is an echo of the prophet Zechariah who writes, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What is happening in Ephesus what is happening in Bellevue, what is happening all around the world when the gospel is proclaimed and believed and Jesus is received, the Holy Spirit is received as well. It's not by might, it's not by power, it's by the Spirit of the Lord. And so what we see in Acts 19 so far is the progression of an ever-expanding scope of the gospel Luke is saying that God's mercy is deep and wide. The Spirit's ministry is expansive, like Jesus's, including those who were previously excluded or uninformed. Think about it. First the disciples, then other Jews, then Samaritans, then Gentiles, and then Jews that had been scattered. Could that be Jesus, the Good Shepherd, saying, that he has others to bring in if you're discouraged in evangelism within your own family with your own network don't be discouraged keep speaking move on if necessary continue god's mercy is deep and wide Bad doctrine versus good doctrine. False doctrine versus true doctrine. Scripture is very clear. Believing in Jesus Christ means receiving the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is born again, every Christian is spirit filled receiving the holy spirit in one sense i get it it's it's extraordinary isn't it god in me it's what paul is writing over and over again being in christ how is christ present with us by his holy spirit it's it's extraordinary but it's also ordinary it's the way it's supposed to be it's normal every believer has the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing is, as we heard from Luke 11, that the Holy Spirit is not only given, mysteriously the Holy Spirit is to be asked for as well. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit is given, but we are to ask for the Holy Spirit. Could that be an aspect of growing us in faith, strengthening our faith? Causing us to not trust in ourselves, not our might, not our power. But in the Lord who gives the Spirit. And what's the ordinary ministry of the Holy Spirit? Years ago I heard someone say that if you're looking for evidence of the Holy Spirit at work, don't look for people rolling around on the floor barking like dogs. Look for people who are patient, kind, gentle, who exercise self-control, who love. You want evidence for the Holy Spirit at work? Look for love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Well, let's end where we began on the subject of reading letters. Do you like to read letters? I personally like to read letters better than I like to write letters. But when it comes to the Bible, we're not reading other people's letters. Rather, we're reading God's letter to us. Because the Bible is one long, abounding and steadfast love letter from God to his people. Do you know the author of that letter? Do you want to know him? When was the last time you sat down and read the Bible with the attitude of wanting to learn more and more about the author? The one who has written and the one who has shared his heart with you. Isn't that what we see in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? Paul sharing his heart with Those he loves? If that's Paul, how much more is that not the Lord from Genesis to Revelation? My friends, more than wanting to be told what we are to do, do we want to know who we are? And do we want to know the one to whom we belong? Praise God for making himself known in creation, for making himself known in his written word, and for making himself known supremely in Jesus Christ, the word in the flesh. My friends, may we all long to know our heavenly father, to know the son, to know the spirit through the means he has given us to know him. Amen. Father, thank you for this, for having Luke record and include this particular incident, this extraordinary, unique, not-to-be-expected-again incident that helps us understand more and more and appreciate the ordinary the usual the expected ministry of your holy spirit among your people in your church oh father would you be pleased to help us display the fruit of the spirit in our lives and give testimony that we are yours and that you have been pleased to rescue us and are pleased to be renewing us. Oh, Father, we long for that day ahead when the struggle and the battle with sin will be done. Until then, Father, help us to keep walking by faith and not by sight as the Holy Spirit strengthens us from the inside to please you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.